everybody. Happy Monday. We are back again for Bring the Jury. Uh, my name is Hannah. This is Luke and Brian Sheely of the Sheely Law Firm located in Columbia and Charleston, South Carolina, specializing in criminal defense, personal injury, um, all the things. All the things. All the things, from stop signs to murder and everything in between. <laughs> So, stop signs out of murder. murder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Murdering yeah. someone who runs a stop sign. Exactly. Murdering someone with a stop sign. Yeah. You guys had that? Use it as like a. That'd be great. That'd yeah. be crazy. Anyways, um, real quick before we dive into Brian Koberger and all of the updates that have um, kind of come up since we last spoke, you can follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and YouTube. If you catch um, little bits of this episode and want to catch the full thing, this episode will be posted on YouTube, the full video version um, this week. And then if you want the audio, that'll be posted to majority of all streaming services as well. And with that, we'll go ahead and get started. So, yeah, Luke has lawyer things. Sorry, we'll go ahead and get started. So, yeah, I mean, we've been talking a lot about Mr. Koberger. He's got a pretty uh, yeah. interesting uh, preliminary hearing coming up. Interesting because, you know, prelims happen around the country all day long. It, it, it is basically the cop's opportunity to state to a judge why he or she has probable cause to arrest an individual. So it happens all the time. It just doesn't always happen on a case of this magnitude where it obviously have uh, four different murder charges. And so last week we were covering about how the defense had an interesting uh, maneuver where they basically executed an out-of-state subpoena on one of the living roommates. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were basically having her come to court from a different state to testify in this preliminary hearing, which is scheduled for June 26, saying that she has exculpatory material, which will help prove their client's innocence. And so that was all lined up. Um, her lawyer, and she had to hire an attorney to try to move to quash that subpoena. And right before all that was being litigated, they kind of agreed, well, we're going to be um, we're going to be interviewed by the defense team. So this is all kind of very unusual um, in the sense that's happening before a preliminary hearing. I mean, the defense is always trying to interview witnesses, especially living witnesses in a house where, mm-hmm. you know, four really kind of heinous stabbings occurred. That's normal, but just the subpoenaing her in was a little bit abnormal. Um, was she the one that's claiming perhaps that she saw the it's, killer or is that the other one? This, this is the other one. So okay. this is the one that is describing the assailant with bushy eyebrows and kind of an athletic build is not really the one that was fighting the subpoena. Okay. This one that is, is kind of, we're not quite sure really about her initial law enforcement interviews. I mean, there is a, a big gag order on the case. Um, but so basically the agreement is that she's going to be interviewed um, by the defense team before the prelim, which is pretty amazing that that's, kind of the resolution of a, a, a motion to quash, a, you know, a subpoena. And that's the end result because that's all they ever want anyway. But um, so that was kind of last week's dealings. But, you know, now the defense has filed a motion to compel evidence in this case 
And that's not so abnormal. I mean, that happens all the time. I, I think in different states, it's way more common. In South Carolina, it's quite common because we don't have a real rigorous, uh, systematic kind of disclosure of, of evidence that is done in a timely way. I mean, it's, it's tragic. I mean, we have rules on it, but there's no teeth to it. So prosecutors kind of send the discovery, send the evidence when they get it. And so we, if we have a big case that we're trying to jumpstart and get our investigation going, we'll usually send a nice letter outlining what we need. Um, this is after our initial motion for the evidence. We'll send a nice letter. If you know months and months and months are dragging on and we don't have the information, we'll file a motion to compel. It's not that big of a deal. So they've done it in this case. Um, and the motion to compel is about some specific items that they obviously want before the prelim. They're looking for forensic information, testing um, of things that are recovered at Brian Koberger's parents' house, trash can, mm -hmm. other receptacles, and also testing that was done on Koberger's Hyundai Elantra. So this is really forensic testing. And you know that kind of stuff, Luke, is that always quick and Johnny on the spot or sometimes that take a bit? No, it does take a bit. Um, help, right, help me with um, that. But yeah, I mean, you want to know what your request for the information quickly and you also know the eyes of the world on this case are watching. So it would be a real pain if you made a, a meal out of some kind of scheduling issue and you had an expert that you're trying to provide with forensic information such as DNA bench notes or things like that and then the judge wants to know why you haven't even really gotten gotten information yet and you can you want to make sure you're covering your tracks to say well I asked once nicely I asked twice nicely and yes I did file a motion it's nothing personal but I want this judge to know that this any delay is not on our end um, so it is uh, it doesn't mean that you are at war or that they're hiding something but it is a very formal request to make sure that everybody knows that you need this information to do your job yeah and if they have if they're specifically requesting that kind of forensic testing done number one it could very likely be not ready and available yet I mean your average DNA testing forensic testing is always the last thing that comes in a, in a coming from the prosecution because it does honestly take a longer bit of time. Now, high-profile cases can get fast-tracked. I mean, all a prosecutor has to do is really dial up and kind of jump the queue um, for their local testing agency, um, whether it's the local law enforcement agency or whether it's going to be, you know, like a statewide ag agency. Like here in South Carolina, we have SLED. Everyone knows about SLED from uh, the Murdoch case. But so they're looking for forensic evidence results um they're saying that it potentially could have exculpatory information and you know this prelim the way they do in idaho it appears that they're going to be calling witnesses potentially you know they're looking for ways to discredit the case and if there's i'm i'm almost positive actually i'm not almost i'm a hundred percent positive that the defense team has hired a dna expert because the DNA link is one of the strongest pieces of evidence in this case so far, and they're going to want to know how to combat that. And so they're getting advice and instruction from a DNA expert, and that's why they're kind of like hammering in on uh, what they're missing in terms of the forensic testing, because they want to get it. 
get it to their DNA expert, and then be ready to cross-examine a lead investigator at the prelim. Um, so looking for all those lab reports, notes. Um, they don't have body camera footage from Koberger's initial arrest. Was it just, was it not recording or was there an issue with No, nope. it's just, they just don't have it. Oh. And so it's not that they're saying it doesn't exist. exist? Oh, okay. Um, they just don't have it um, from his, uh, his initial arrest in Pennsylvania. And, you know, that could be due to the fact that it's a different agency out in Pennsylvania, but it, you know, body cam is pretty easily made available. Um, so motion to compel pending, you know, a lot of people are kind of freaking out about that. And, oh my gosh, you know, it's a terrible thing. And how, you know, how awful is that for the defense to file? It's just, it's just practice of law, people. It is just the practice of law. Um, now, if you file a motion to compel the first week after arrest, yeah, that's that's not a good practice. But you know, we're now into six, seven months of this case. I think it's appropriate this time, and it, you know, it's just one of those things that we I probably filed five hundred to a thousand motion to compels in my sixteen year career so far, and I probably will file another. You know, 2,000, 3,000 as I continue on. So it's just one of those things that sometimes that's what it takes to, to light a fire. Um, so also with this case, there, there's been a lot of discussion about the death penalty and death penalty in Idaho and what that could look like. Mention of, you know, whether it be firing squad or all these other different forms of death penalty. There was news was it this week about death penalty prosecutors that yeah um so can you talk a little bit about that sure i mean it's you know we got this gag order but there so it's really the news is on this case is very much coming through four or five different filters you know it's very the stuff that comes out is very slow and then it's so any little bit of news is is big news but you know so um Basically, the county prosecuting attorney, Bill Thompson, has brought in two kind of prosecutors, um, brought in Jeff Nye, who is the chief of the state criminal law division. I wonder if he's related to Bill. Bill Nye. Oh, that'd be fascinating. Um, probably not. Probably not. So um, they're good when they bring in the death penalty prosecutors. So they brought in, these are both from the Idaho Attorney General's office. Um, they brought in, you know, Jeff Nye, who's kind of the head of their criminal law division. They also brought in a lady named Ingrid Beatty, who's the state's um, lead deputy attorney general for special prosecution to assist uh, Bill Thompson's office. What I have starred here, and I find to be, you know, so that they're loaded for bear. They're bringing in these prosecutors to help shape the prosecution. In they're receiving evidence, they're looking at it, they're trying to figure out what kind of case do we have here. You know, these death penalty prosecutions are are sensitive. You know, you don't want to get it wrong. You don't want to jump the gun and fall flat on your face. Um, you don't want to have a death penalty case if it's full of legal issues. And we're going to talk about some legal issues that may be baked into the case with one of the officers, but so they're getting ready as they can be. Luke, I mean, from day one, the defense team would be thinking about this in terms of a death penalty case, right? 
Absolutely. I mean, you, whoever is representing, we know the lawyers are preparing for the worst, hoping for the best, but also trying to maybe find reasons to convince the prosecution not to seek death. So you, in a death case, you need mitigation. You need any reason to spare life. So they're looking for all of that. Um, but also knowing that probably the politics surrounding it are going to probably cause it to be noticed for death. And it's just a whole different ballgame because you have such a extensive jury selection process compared to a normal homicide murder case. And it's it's bifurcated. You got two different trials. You have a, a guilt phase to decide just like a normal case is someone innocent beyond a reasonable doubt of the crime alleged. Are they not? Um, and if they're found guilty, then you have a whole separate trial um, just to decide the punishment, whether it's life or death. And so it's a whole trial then. And so it just takes uh, uh, way more work, way more skill involved. And so obviously they're bringing in folks probably on both sides that are have that kind of experience. And it also ups, ups the ante for pellet issues, cost, um, obviously involved on both sides. So it, it definitely requires a lot more skill and training. So one of the special prosecutors, Ingrid Beatty, and you know, actually according to her LinkedIn, attended the same university where all four victims were killed. And she in Nye has been an adjunct professor there at the same university since twenty twenty one. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Is that conflict of interest still? I mean it's it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, also, I guess a very large university, so they may not, I mean, have any connection, but that would also be... It's a large university. I'm sure the prosecutors will say, you know, it's a big campus. It's, right. you know, anyone that's everyone in the area could potentially teach there or, or mm -hmm. could have attended. So I don't think it's on its face a, a conflict of interest. I mean, we, we had a murder case here over a decade ago where one of the, you know, it was a close call where there was a prosecutor that was very much in the vicinity of a, a murder. I mean, she basically lived up the street from a murder. I need your phone. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm in the middle of something. That <laughs> my phone is, oh shit. I tried to avoid oh. it. I need a text from it. Can, oh, is it like a code? Yeah. It texted a code? Um, Sorry. No, you're good. Okay. Ryan, why don't you tell us some um, fun uh, facts about being a twin? Uh, being a twin. Are you invested in the twin shenanigans or the Goldberger case? Also, we um, have a question. Yeah, that's, now's a good time for... how they will begin to defend Koberger with all of the evidence they currently have. What do you have to say? Comes in, I mean, it's, it would seem that they potentially could have a lot of evidence. Um, but we'll see. I mean, if We've got a couple things we're going to talk about in terms of some new unsealed search warrants that are, there's rumors of more evidence coming in, but I mean, right now they've got the DNA, they've got a vehicle description, 
Um, they've got video surveillance of a vehicle matching a description that Coburger drives. They've got the kind of lack of evidence sometimes is the evidence. We're, we're still going. It's all good. Do we have to take it off the phone to do this? Um, In the work hours, so, yeah, things are happening. Things are happening. By the clock, I mean, any second, you know. That'd be awesome. You never know. Um, all right, so what were we talking about before that? We were talking about... Um, well, uh, Mr. Walker had a question, or Walker had a question about... There's a lot of evidence for Alec. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll, I mean, we'll see. I mean, this, I, I'll just say this again. The prelim is going to be fascinating. It's probably going to be a very lengthy proceeding. It's going to be fascinating. It'll totally kind of un, un, unveil defense strategy. It'll probably help us cue in more on how the prosecutors are going to be looking at this case. I mean, clearly it seems like they're going to be trying to establish that he was a stalker type figure. We're going to get to this in a little yes. bit here, yeah. but like there's more information kind of coming out of the, the filtering process of this gag order that maybe indicates he did know one of the victims and maybe was jilted. We'll talk all about that in a little bit here, but back to the, the big hot shot, death penalty prosecutors, the, the big guns are coming in and they're pissed because the victims are, you know, at the school where they teach and went and attended. So that is very odd. But yeah, it, it does ring a little odd. Um, so Speaking of, did you hear? I don't know if this is new. If you heard about this, but Koberger was a security guard at his high school. I believe that he graduated from for five years, two years prior to now. Um, and they had, you know, good things to say that he was reserved and everything, but reliable. And But it's just, I, I find it so interesting that this guy was so fascinated with uh, security, uh, criminology, you know, all of those things. I mean... And this guy is getting a full psychological yeah. workup done on him right now by the defense team. And it may never be known if it's bad, if it's... If it's mitigating in some kind of way, it'll come out potentially at trial, but he's being assessed up mm -hmm. and down. I Probably, mean, he's, got, he's got the eyes. He does have interesting he's eyes. He's got the eyes. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm just kidding. So, talking a little bit more about this gag order, this filtering process that we're under right now. I mean, we are completely under a gag order, so everything is in fits and bursts of, of information. One thing interesting about the gag order is that it's been appealed and it's come up before. And the interesting thing about it is that um, it was appealed up to the Supreme Court in Idaho. Um, so the, the judge that set it set a very broad gag order. And so the media has appealed it, but also one of the victim's families has appealed it. Um, the Gonclaves family are part of the appeal process. And so this is a victim's family that wants the gag order lifted. And of course, local media, national media wants it lifted. And, you know, it just strikes me as something to talk about because the victim, a victim's family wants information. Now, the victims are getting information, presumably under the Victims' Rights Act of the state of Idaho from the prosecutor's office. 
but maybe they're not getting as much information as they want because there's a fear of you know information kind of coming out and being leaked or I mean every state has their own version of a victim's rights act to be kept informed and so I'm just thinking about reasons why a victim's family would be kind of jumping in to appeal this gag order and it could be because they're just not getting enough information from prosecutors and prosecutors are sitting there with their hands kind of held up and like we can't we can't tell you things which would seem to be flying in the face of a victim's rights act the other thing that's interesting about it is on most big cases the defense team is very comfortable not i mean having a true gag order in place because it helps limit the exposure of information to a potential jury pool the higher the profile of the case, the bigger the exposure, right. the more people hear about information and kind of get their minds made up. Um, I mean, this is a very popular topic for the podcast, and we kind of look at things that we want to talk about based on, you know, popularity, popularity and, and what are people wa- well wanting us to look at. And so this is coming out repeatedly as a, as a case of interest. And so... I guarantee you the defense is not interested in a gag order being lifted because they want to keep this as insulated as possible so as not to taint potential jury panel. you got to find a jury at some point that is um, not knowing a whole lot about, you know, facts or anything like that. How are we doing, Luke? I still need to text. <laughs> okay. I really apologize. No, don't apologize. <laughs> Sorry. The annoying the crap out of in something right now it's <laughs> needs my foot and it doesn't allow me to engage with viewers because yeah. I'm the more entertaining twin anyway <laughs> I mean so I, I lose that weekly affirmation that should be a poll who do you that. think is the more engaging twin that I say we Luke and Brian are not the lawyers um, assigned to the case again we are in uh, <laughs> South Carolina oh is that a question <laughs> Well, it's um, like, why are we talking about it if there's a gag order? Well, because the gag order is for the state of Idaho, and so we get to talk about it all we want because we're not in the state of Idaho. Um, but that being said, the gag order... Has this been... is not our first live. So oh. I was like, so I was like, tell me it's your first live without telling me it's your first live. That is sorry, very funny, Aaron. Sorry. Sorry for all sorry. the technical difficulties. Um, it's not our first live, but um, we definitely do have a lot to... So the, the gag order was just deemed by the Supreme Court in Idaho as being unconstitutional. It, vague, overly broad, unduly restrictive. One more time. Come on, I'm not shaking you. This is so annoying. <laughs> okay, this will be, I think, the last time we have to pause it. But will it? But will it. So, the gag order has been deemed by the Supreme Court to be too restrictive and unconstitutional, and they basically have issued an order telling the lower court, get your stuff together, we're going to let you do the right thing on it. And so that lower court, this magistrate judge has decided to hold a hearing on it um, to essentially correct things. So, it seems like we could be getting a whole lot more information on this case because the gag order is going to be... No more. Um, So speaking of interesting things, because right now we're dealing with lots of restricted information on this case, there's information coming and is being reported that based on a new unsealed search warrant, 
um, probably having to do with disclosures coming before the June 26th preliminary hearing, that there's interesting things coming out of the search warrant. The biggest thing of note for me, and I think a lot of people, is that um, one of the victim's IDs, driver's license IDs, may have been located in Brian Koberger's glove box of his vehicle. This is so interesting to me. So, and maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead because we're going to talk about incel later. Um, but my dad uh, is a criminal defense attorney in North Carolina, and he worked he worked a case one time where he was representing a police officer who became um, obsessed with this woman who. Uh, pretty much kept turning him down, and we're gonna get we're gonna circle back to why this applies to Brian Koberger later. Um, but you know, this, it's this idea of this incel, which is involuntarily celibate, um, and I guess that's very specific. But it really is like broadly just maybe a heterosexual man that kind of blames women for his lack of success romantically. Anyways, this fits so in line with this case that my dad worked, and one of the big pieces of evidence that's kind of a nail in the coffin um, was they found the woman that he killed who he was trying to pursue and she kept rejecting him he killed her um, as a result and they found her ID in his possession Mm. (laughs) just kind of crazy so I think Walker who was listening was like how are they going to defend this guy (laughs) they got nothing yet yet. compared to what could be coming so I mean, again, this is kind of in the light of this gag order, but it seems to be fairly specific. So it's clearly somebody that has access to the unsealed search warrant is looking at a victim's ID, maybe found in Koberger's glove box. So that would be huge, right? I mean, that would be like attacking DNA, attacking... You know, from a defense perspective, why he may have turned his cell phone off so you can't do the geolocation tracking and also the cell phone tower tracking. That's one thing. But to find a victim's ID in a glove box after killing would be significant. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be the Snapchat video of this case. It would be the, yeah, the Snapchat video of the kennels from the Murdoch <laughs> case in this case. Um but again, that is not substantiated yet. It's just being reported, um, coming through the gag order filter. And that would just be crazy. So, um, but it does kind of lead us into a lot of people. If that is true, and, it, and this prosecution becomes more of a stranger home invasion killing to a stalking incel complex, uh, unrequited affection, mm-hmm. need uncontrollable rage, need to deal with my rejection, and just that kind of thing. Victim blaming. Victim blaming. Um, so, Hannah, do you want to talk more? I mean, I think you covered a little bit but about yeah. the incel complex and what you've learned about it and what it means. Yeah. So, incel complex, again, to reiterate, is involuntarily celibate. Um, typically referring to a heterosexual male and his view um, of society, kind of blaming society and women specifically for his lack of success in you know, that romantic realm. Um, 
And I feel like you see this a lot portrayed, like in Hollywood. I mean, I think it's a fairly common thing. Um, maybe this toxic masculinity of refusing to kind of take ownership for perhaps your own like shortcomings, or that you have to be successful with women to to have any sort of like identity. I mean, you know, we could go deep into that, but. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what they're framing this as, or I think what they've just nodded towards with Koberger. It's funny because we were watching a video, a police cam, of him, you know, talking. He got pulled over, you know, because he was, like, in an intersection or something, doing something illegal in Washington, which has crazy traffic laws anyways, so. Mm -hmm. But um, he... You know, he just came off very, you know, awkward, like, socially, just, like, something's just different. The way that he was talking to a police officer was just not, just not normal. Yeah, I mean, we, what Hannah's referring to is they've, some body cam footage mm -hmm. has been released of a traffic stop that Koberger had an interaction with a, a, a female law enforcement officer that basically pulled him over for running a red light. And we watched this video, I'm sure a lot of you have as well. And, you know, I, as a uh, practicing criminal defense lawyer, and I, I kind of feel like my interactions with law enforcement professionally, you know, I've, I have no fear. But, you know, even when I get pulled over by a cop for speeding, you know, I'm a little nervous, you know, you kind of just can't help it, right? Right, right. So, like, in court, I have no fear. But if I get, you know, I don't want to get a speeding ticket, I'm... I'm yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, officer. How can I? I mean, I'm trying to do everything right. Yeah. He's pretty combative in this Koberger video. Koberger is immediately challenging <laughs> this woman. Out of state. The state that he, I don't think he's familiar with the, right. the law. Right. And she, she's very respectful. She comes up and says, just so you know, you're being audio and video recorded. You know, you, you know why I stopped you. And he's instantly challenging her and saying, well, you know, I wasn't. You know where I'm from. Our traffic laws are different, and you can you know kind of see my point of view. And I, you know, and she's just like, well, you broke the law, and so you know we can't do that here. And then he's even saying, well, we don't even have crosswalks in Pennsylvania because she was saying you're in the crosswalk. He just keeps going on and on. And he basically, you know, it's interesting you you mentioned like kind of toxicity if he has relationship issues or whatever. Like he is really. Trying to control the situation. Correct. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Um, this woman can't be right. <laughs> and he's just kind of talking all about everything um, with her. And ultimately, he gets a warning ticket. But like he is not the meek kind of thank you. I'm so sorry. I, mm -hmm. I, I just wasn't paying. He's really talking about his own local traffic laws that are different. He's talking about you know where he's from, and he's kind of debating her assessment of the situation when she had eyes on it. So it yeah. is very interesting. This was very shortly before this, these killings. I would love to, you know, we mentioned the body cam footage, um, that currently we just don't have, I suppose. Um, I would be so interested to like see and compare his interactions with a male officer versus this female officer that pulled him over just in relation to this whole, allegation of incel with him particularly in his personality and kind of how that adds up because yeah with that in mind and then viewing that video kind of through that lens it's like I can totally see that for him um just the way that he was you know kind of carrying himself having this conversation with this woman and then you know if, if all of this were to kind of fall in line a week later with these killings of these women that he, 
you know, perhaps was stalking or had been rejected by, or, you know, the story can go on and on. I mean, it, it would be very interesting. When I was watching that video, I kept thinking he reminds me so much of Jake Gyllenhaal in Nightcrawler, if you've seen that movie. I mean, it's almost like eerily similar how how identical their behaviors are and like even the eyes I mean everything if you've seen that movie you definitely know what I'm talking about but yeah he he is no shrinking violet in that interaction with law enforcement yeah very Um, odd he definitely thinks he's in control of the situation he thinks Mm -hmm. he's smarter than that officer yeah um we we ever have any clients that think they're smarter and better than everyone else yeah from time to time um you know, a couple of things, and we, we kind of had a talking point in our last episode about some of the evidence they were getting out of his apartment. We were kind of, you know, talking a little bit and having a little fun game about some things that were found at his parents' house that are very common, like knives and um, pistols and magazines and, you know, things that can kind of be sensationalized and make it seem a little bit more sinister than what it really is. Things are very common in a lot of people's homes, but um, one thing that we were not aware of and is being reported on is that in his apartment, now this is his, you know, his apartment um, where he was living and studying as a, you know, criminology uh, PhD candidate. Um, the blood that was found on his mattress was presumptive for blood, and so that is more than just a red stain. You know, maybe he had a nosebleed one night, or maybe he had blood all over him and went to sleep and did, you know. So maybe he killed a cat in his own bed. So you never know. Um, (laughs) But it is presumptively testing positive for blood. Now, we do know from covering the Murdoch trial that just because you're presumptively positive for blood, like SLED tested Murdoch's shirt, presumptively positive, and then it it was officially tested and had no blood on it. So these presumptive tests aren't always accurate, but we do know at least preliminarily it was positive for blood. They'll do further testing. There are some more descriptive uh, descriptors of his apartment as being like bare bones, limited furniture. He didn't have a shower curtain. Nightcrawler. He didn't have a shower curtain. So like his trash was all emptied. There was hardly anything in his desk drawers. Like just Spartan existence, or either he cleaned it out uh, in anticipation of a follow-up investigation. So that is interesting to all of us. Um, you know, one other thing that is a talking point. Oh, and the bedroom door was locked when the police showed up. Ah. His bedroom door. I mean, I think they got in, but maybe just interesting. I don't know. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he was just, you know, didn't want any amateurs stalking through his, his desk drawers with uh, nothing in them. But it, yeah, I mean, so it's locked. Um, the other interesting thing that's coming out is that the DA's office has basically announced that they were disclosing, pursuant to Brady and Giglio, that there is an internal affairs investigation they're disclosing concerning one of their officers to the defense team. And so, you know, a lot of officers will have an internal affairs file that's completely empty. You know, officer does a good job for 20, 30 years, and it may have some harmless complaints in it. 
But if the DA is actually making a public announcement that they're disclosing pursuant to Giglio um, material related to an officer in this case, that tells me that the defense team already has it. Um, you know, they've probably already done a Freedom of Information Act request, or they already have gotten this information. And I think the DA probably feels that they better disclose it before they get ambushed by it or taken advantage of maybe in a preliminary hearing regarding this information. So I don't know if it's going to be the, one of the lead case agents or maybe just the, the cop that, you know, was looking at Hyundai Elantras and trying to figure out which one looked like a good one to you know, follow up a lead. I don't know who's going to be, but there is an internal affairs investigation file being turned over, which is, you know, that's great. More disclosure is better. It's more accountability for a prosecutor's office. It's what you should do in all cases. Um, there's actually a great case called Kyle's v. Whitley that I think about often when I'm trying to convince a prosecutor to do their job and disclose evidence. And it says that a prudent and cautious prosecutor should always lean towards the side of disclosure as opposed to, you know, just you know, even things that aren't written down as opposed to like just keeping their own, you know, private musings and internal understandings of a case to, to themselves. So really the, the, our U S Supreme court has said even things that aren't written down or, you know, video footage or forensic data, let's say a prosecutor has a conversation with a witness that's not anywhere other than, a phone call or maybe a prosecutor and an in-house investigator go out to a scene and are talking to somebody or viewing something that contradicts something else or is exculpatory of impeachment and it's not even written down or there's no report generated, they gotta they gotta disclose it. So, you know, we do applaud prosecutors when they disclose things like this. Um, clearly there's some officer that has some internal affairs baggage that they wanna get ahead of, they wanna do the right thing. So I imagine we'll know a whole lot more about that at the June 26 preliminary hearing event, or if the gag order gets lifted in advance of June 26, we're going to hear a lot about everything um, that is, you know, building up in this case. But at least we have one officer with some issues. Good for the defense. And of course the prosecution needs to try to get ahead of it. So the defense doesn't make a bigger deal of it. But it's hard to say unless there's something in there, but it can be very helpful for any defense lawyer. We had a case a couple of weeks ago where I had an internal affairs file that was pretty plumpy with some good information. Plumpy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to cross-examine this officer, and I just said, you know, I've got your internal affairs file when you talk about it. But let's just talk about how you weren't really qualified to do what you did here. And if I recall, that file that you waved around at that officer while he was on the stand as soon as you said that he instantly rolled over and let you tickle his belly basically tickled his belly so it's very helpful to have that file for the defense right uh all right um <laughs> <laughs> what's next on the docket i think that's it that's yeah. it we kind of went through everything i mean we're gonna talk about the video i mean a lot i mean he, I think yeah we, we've talked about kind of all the major talking points as soon as this gag order gets lifted we're gonna have Lots of information, but those are our talking points for today. Now the sun's back, I got it. Yeah, it's because we started earlier today, so now it's coming in later. Right. So, 
if you guys have any last minute questions, we're going to just quickly maybe touch on some of the Murdoch news while we get questions. Yeah, I mean, I think the the Murdoch news. Okay, okay. So if you have any questions, um, really about anything, doesn't have to be about Idaho Four or Brian Koberger, but um, if you have that, go ahead and ask us below. We'll answer. Um, or just any burning questions that you have for the Bring the Jury podcast, uh, we're happy to answer. Uh, we won't disclose uh, Luke's bank information that he was <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, so intent on getting. But that, anything else is Did they not scroll down on this TikTok live? Did that bank information <laughs> yeah, just not like just come, come screen, down? Screen share the bank info? <laughs> no, that didn't happen. But anything else, we're, we're open books. So while you guys are asking any you know last minute questions that you may have before we log off, we're just going to touch on some of the updates with the Murdoch trial. Well, not trial, sorry, but uh, Murdoch News Channel. Yeah, <laughs> and I think some of the newsworthy items, and we touched upon this last week, is you know Murdoch is has responded in some civil case pleadings concerning the Satterfield settlement that he essentially lied to. An insurance investigator um, to kind of get more money out of that case, and so he's basically saying that he initially said that he, his dogs were the ones that maybe knocked uh, Miss Satterfield, the housekeeper, and now he's saying that was a lie. So Bubba, <laughs> Bubba, Bubba, Bubba the dog. Um, so he's basically in these pleadings saying that that was not the case. He lied about it. So is he trying to like? shorten his sentence or like is he gonna try to come up with some deal that's like I'll give you the real story if you like can he I mean that what's the angle I don't know what the angle is other than he's trying to disrupt the I mean what it does is it basically he's basically kind of admitting that he's committed insurance fraud but what but I think what people are concerned about is it somehow could undo an insurance payout that ultimately and hopefully went to the Satterfields. But what do you think his angle is, Luke, on doing that? I don't know. But I know uh, Satterfield lawyers are not happy about it. <clears throat> and I think simultaneously, Mr. Murdoch's lawyers are trying to request some funds from the receivership to fund the appeal. So maybe they're concerned about money going back in the Murdoch pot or out of a Satterfield pot. Um, it is a little strange. Yeah, there was a hearing last week where, you know, Jim Griffin was asking for money from the receivership fund or his or Murdoch's retirement fund, which has been frozen for the purpose of paying financial crimes victims. He's asking they were asking for about a hundred and sixty thousand and some change so that the same defense team that did his trial can now be part to be funded for the uh, the appellate process. And I think Jim Griffin was quoted as saying, well, Judge, you know, if we can't get funding, then he's going to have to go to the public defender's office. That was a little insulting, because let's be clear. The appellate defenders in South Carolina, that all they do are the appeals. And for, most people can't afford an appellate lawyer to take up their case. But there's a whole order of appellate defenders that are the smartest and the brightest and the most experienced trial uh, appellate advocates um, at that level that you just guys that do trial work can't really 
translate to appellate work. The rules are different. What you plead is different. The judges in, that you're in front of in terms of the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court are not your trial judges. The issues have to be litigated differently. So we tell people all day long that will maybe call us up and say, hey, I, you know, I hear you guys are good. Can you do my appeal? No, I don't want to do your appeal. I couldn't do it. Well, did one. Well, you've done one. but that, seven years. Yeah, yeah. So, like, <laughs> so I, I found that to be a little bit... I'm sure they want to, you know, keep your hands on the case. I get that, but like, the the lawyers at the appellate the appellate defenders are just they are the best appellate lawyers in the state of South Carolina. Now the state pays for them, so that's a whole other issue. Is that you know a lot of people are like, well, we we have these victims that need to be paid, and no more money needs to be going to defense lawyers on this case. However, it is either that way, or there can be a lot of investment on the appellate defense side and so that money's being spent either way he's got a right to an appeal he's got a, and a right to appeal a denial at the appellate level and keep on going up so you know I just um, if they want to release some money that's one thing but just the thought that if the money isn't released they'll, he'll be forced to have to go to the appellate defender's office is a little bit you know, that's not a bad thing. Those lawyers are great. Um, they are really the smartest lawyers, some of the smartest lawyers in the state of South Carolina. So there's that issue. Um, there's been some discussion about, like, where is where is he being housed? What's his living situation like? I mean, Alec Murdoch is in protective custody. Um, he has to be. He will always be in protective custody at the South Carolina Department of Corrections because he's the most famous guy there. And so he can't just be in a in a unit, you know, on Broad River or someplace else. He's gonna always be in a special statewide protective custody detail. And you know, that means that he he I mean he could be anywhere. He could be anywhere in the state, he could be anywhere in the country. I've had clients that for instance, I had a client that saved a guard and from being killed and due to by some gang members because there was a hit on the guard. And so my client intervened and and he got savagely beaten almost to to his death for retaliation purposes. And so for the SCDC put him in protective custody and he he served the remainder of his sentence, like mostly out of state. I mean, he would tell me stories about he would go to West Virginia in some prison and it was like they let him smoke and, you know, like th things are different. I mean, and he moves around constantly. You can't really stay fixed in one unit. So where Alec Murdoch is, I don't know, but he certainly is can't be housed like a normal inmate where you're on a block and you're on a yard and you're kind of working a job and everyone kind of, you get into a routine. He just will never be like that um, due to his um, protective custody classification. So <laughs> this last thing, um, we do have a lot of questions, but we did have something funny just come through. The lighting on the face from the sun looks like we're telling ghost stories. Um, so we do have a lot of questions. I'm going to uh, just kind of fire them off. 
I'm not going to ask all of them because some of them we have answered either in the last episode. This is, I think, part five, uh, maybe part four or five that we've done on Idaho 4. Um, Where can they find us? And so you are, thank you, Brian. You can go and listen to those episodes and get those answers to your questions. All of our episodes are posted on YouTube and major streaming platforms. If you like audio over the video, um, you can find us there and get those questions. But other questions that do need answers are about to be served right now. Um, So, first question. Um, Do you think that uh, he acted alone? This is just kind of an opinion, but I, I find this to be very Coburn. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We're switching back to Coburger. I, Luke, Luke, you can weigh in too, but I think we both... If he did it, then I think... 100%, 100% acted alone. Yeah. This is kind of a lone wolf, plan it out, map it out, be be weird, be Nightcrawler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're going to watch Nightcrawler. Tonight. I need to watch Nightcrawler. Yeah, it's very good. Do it's it. Very good. Try not to make witnesses, so act alone. Um... Let's see. Why have a new detective take such a high-profile case? Payne was not the most experienced, it shows. I mean, I think sometimes these cases come in and they just get assigned. They get, a, I mean, they get on a rotation. Whoever's up. And... On deck. Whoever's on deck. And, and until they get into a case, they don't really know... Like, this case is obviously so sensational because of who Koberger is. You know, this criminology PhD candidate who wanted to work in law enforcement, who was... And a number of bodies. Who kind of has this aura, vibe about him. You know, he's potentially, he's got IDs of his victims in his car. He's stalking, he's doing things. So, like, you know, there are lots of, you know, kind of mass homicides and, and, you know, slaying killings of family members and homes and... So they don't know how sensational a case is going to be when it first comes off the beat. Like these major crimes investigators, whether they're kind of new to the division, they'll get a case. They're up. You know, uh, there was an investigator that worked two two nights in a row taking cases. Now they're up, and time to time to earn your paycheck. And so it's just one of those things that sometimes they just don't know how big a case is going to be. So that's my best way of answering that. Um, should the university wait to demolish the house? I've seen a lot of this people discussing, you know, because the university wants to tear down the house out of respect and, you know, all that all that jazz. Do you believe that they should wait? I guess what could the house offer that it hasn't already been? A lot. Yeah. A lot. Um, well, certainly from a defense perspective, they could hire several different experts who really have a desire to look at the crime scene, to see the layout. Is it consistent with a witness's account? Do their own collections. I mean, a lot of times we'll go back to a crime scene with an expert and find different things. If whoever watched the Murdoch trial, I mean, you can you note the various experts that went to the scene and were finding you know different pellets yeah. lodged to explain different angles. So. Would the jury even potentially be able to yeah, visit might want to. House? They might want to stand right there, just like the, the jury went to Moselle. So it's, I mean, at some point, the state or the defense may want to revisit it for some particular reason to collect some additional evidence, tear up the carpets, you know, time something, measure something. So, yeah. I mean, if I were hearing about the university thinking about demolishing that building... I'd be filing a motion, a preservation motion right now, a spoilation motion, 
to prevent anything from happening until the case is over on that particular crime scene. Because um, like we don't have the forensic information yet. We don't have a lot of information yet. The, well, the public doesn't know a whole lot. The defense team is already filing a motion to compel. So they're seeking more information, but especially concerning the expert type information, DNA, forensic, crime scene reconstruction, things that the defense doesn't have yet. Once they get it and assess it, they could very well want to have their experts go out and, you know, and test and retest. And we have two living victims too. So, or, or people that are in the home. And so like Luke says, if they're testifying or their or their affidavits coming out in a preliminary hearing, they could be describing the house, the surroundings, what they saw, and you may want to go back and retest, remeasure. Um, Luke's got a funny story. Remember that crime scene up North Main Street where you and our senior investigator did some retesting, and that kind of how that turned out. Shane's uh, house. Remember where Bobby's dad was running and doing the time? Yeah. Yeah, tell that story. That's great. Well, I mean, it was, it was a It's an example of going back to a crime scene. We went to the crime scene, and, and the victim gave a very particular account of the time and how where he was when the robbers robbed him and came out. And so we were at the scene, and I think the prosecutor came with us to the scene. <laughs> and all of a sudden, our... Uh, Cracker Jack and Best Care at the time. Well, what there. kind of crime scene? What kind of area was this? It was a very bad part of town. Um, <laughs> and our, no slight to North and Main our, if you're watching from Columbia. I don't, I don't think the prosecutor had realized where our um, investigator had gone. And, you know, we were t- chatting, but he uh, he was a middle-aged, older African-American male with big cowboy hats. You can't really miss him. But all of a sudden, he decided he was going to time and measure the path of flight that they would be assailants would have had to take how long would it take to get the streets so our investigator we're just talking to the prosecutor on the sidewalk and this guy comes hauling butt out of the out of the apartment full tilt sprinting like Terminator like six foot two with a cowboy hat right, and running and runs past the prosecutor and then like stops and like times and the prosecutor like ducked because he didn't know what was going on he thought that something was going down in this neighborhood. And we're like, that's just, that's Bobby. What are you talking it's about? It's so like, um, But it's important to revisit the scene, really, every case. Absolutely. Be- so it would be a major problem if the university knocked down that house and destroyed the defense and the prosecution's ability to go revisit. And again, the prosecution team now has two university employees working for them? Well, it looks like one was a professor there in, through 2021, and one attended there as part of their education. So they have ties to it. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, um, I'm going to lump a few questions together here because we've got a lot of questions about the living roommates. Um, so what are your thoughts uh, on Dylan? Um, and then I'm going to kind of circle back. Someone else then piped in and said, I think DM, so, you know, that's Dylan, and BF, the other roommate's stories, could potentially clash. Koberger's timeline seems jacked up already. So, I guess, wherever you guys want to jump in on that. Well, I mean, Dylan, by all accounts, gives more of a physical description of the assailant, and then uh, 
BF, who's the the living witness that was being subpoenaed in. I mean, the only reason you want her under oath in a courtroom on the witness stand at this stage is to contradict and impeach either investigation or another witness. So she, I, I agree with the person that's asking the question here. I think what BF has to say is going to undermine or contradict something else that Dylan is saying. Um, it's going to be, I mean, the defense team and filing for the subpoena and their reason for it described it as, you know, exculpatory information um, and could prove his innocence. So it, it does seem queued up to be something of real value for the defense team. And we haven't heard anything about Dylan. So it seems like you know, the defense team is not trying to bring Dylan in for the preliminary hearing, it seems so interested in Miss Funk, I believe that's how you pronounced her name, BF. And so they're gonna take her statement. They're, she's agreed to meet with the defense team as opposed to having to travel out of state for the prelim. So it seems it's gonna be a great significance that's gonna be potentially impeaching her, her roommate's account. And again, there was this delivery driver as well that we have that mm-hmm. came we haven't heard a lot about DoorDash. DoorDash. Yeah, I love DoorDash. <laughs> um, DoorDash, if you're sponsored by DoorDash, if you're listening, <laughs> you're a thousand times better than Bite Squad. Bite Squad is always messing that stuff up. This is not a paid ad. No, it's just my personal belief. What about like, Uber Eats? I have not tried that. Oh, I like an Uber. Um, Ubers are safe. Ubers don't drink and drive. Well, depending on. Which, well, which okay. you get in. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> famous case here in, in Columbia, yeah. South Carolina, surprisingly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's not good. But anyway, yeah, DoorDash, they get there fast. They don't screw up. And so any, anyway, we're going to have a lot of DoorDash information in this case, I imagine. DoorDash witnesses and stuff. That'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. Will it be televised? I'm assuming it's going to be oh, yeah. just like how the oh, yeah. Murdoch trial was. Well, now that the Supreme Court has come down and said this vague blanket gag order is unconstitutional, and then, hey, local magistrate judge fixed this, is essentially what, where we are, I imagine it's going to be gag order widely less restrictive, and then for any kind of court proceedings, we're going to have full access. Full access, yep. So Court TV is already booking, I'm sure, hotels in the area. Wait, hold on. We've got the best uh, listeners always, or viewers that always tune in. They are so informed. Y'all are awesome. Someone just wrote in and said, the DoorDash driver is allegedly EB, I don't know, I don't need the initials, who is currently in jail for alleged murder of Caden Young. And then someone else piped in and said, yeah, the DoorDash driver is in jail. What? Wow. Say what? We need to look this up. This defense just got interesting. Because that would be... <laughs> and the DoorDash driver also recently got picked up for drugs. I mean, if there's a DoorDash driver there that has a, a body that... Emma Bailey? It's a woman? She. Or yes. she that yes, has a... her name is Emma. Her name is Emma. Thank you all. You guys are great. So, well, we're going to look into that because I want to research that extensively. But if there yes. is someone that has a pending murder charge and they were DoorDashing that occasion and then old Brian Koberger let's say he does 
is obsessed about one of these girls and wants to mm-hmm. follow up and then, you know, that's a third party guilt case and that would be quite interesting. Third party guilt case. This maybe, is crazy. Maybe he uh, walked in an open door and saw a bloody scene and touched it and left. And, oh my gosh. And I'm just a wow, creepy, creepy guy in the one. wrong place at the wrong time. Wow. That is fascinating information. We, this is a new discovery. I would, let's Ozark this one. We're going to Ozark this. So what if, I mean, because he is this criminal, I don't know. We're, we're going to come back next week with, with a whole theory. Um, unless you guys got one off the cuff already. Um, I love a good third party guilt case. Plot maybe, twist. Or maybe he knew that the DoorDash person had a criminal Wait, issue. Wait, the or? guy with her, she was with someone? Man, we're going to have to research this. Oh, we got to get hard. And on she them. lives right behind 1122 King Road. Is that where their house is? The house that yeah, is yeah. up for Demol? Oh my gosh, y'all. This is wild. We need to bring these people on, on the pod. <laughs> where, where y'all at? <laughs> um, film, okay, this is crazy. Um, really appreciate you all for tuning in and um, all the engagement that y'all gave and a, a lot of homework that we're going to do so now. So now we're going to deep dive into this DoorDash person. Yeah. We're going to figure out her sitch and we're going to talk some more about that and what the defense could do with that in terms of pushing it away from Koberger and trying to blame someone else. Fascinating. Mm. Yeah. Who needs a trial when you have bring the jury? Exactly. We'll give you all the updates bring you the need. Jury. This is another little nugget and we're going to have to just vet all this, but like she's the DoorDash driver who's now in jail is also apparently best friends with the sixth roommate that didn't end up moving in. Ooh. You know, there's all just, snap. there's just a lot happening. Motive, um, opportunity. Again, appreciate you guys. You all are amazing. Um, so fun every week to tune in with you to get more of this content you can always follow us on our other social media platforms or obviously TikTok but we're on Instagram Facebook Twitter LinkedIn for the intellectuals out there and the professionals and YouTube as well so this full episode will be posted to YouTube this week if you missed any parts um, I'll try to edit out the pauses um. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did really well today you didn't curse once Oh yeah, I was only in here like ten minutes. (laughs) Um, That's great. That's great. There's a win. Um, You probably cursed at the bank, people though. Yeah, yeah. that's okay. Um, Anyways, thank you all so much again. This is Bring the Jury, and if you have any more outstanding questions um, that we didn't answer today, go check our other episodes, or go ahead and send us a message, and we will cover it next time. I think we might have to come back to the Idaho 4 case next week mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely definitely coming back with DoorDash. Yeah. yeah. DoorDash. Maybe we, we order DoorDash while we're here. Yeah. Oh, nice. That'd be crazy. I'll take a 